0: Hi and welcome back to the Art Bystander. I'm Roland Philipp Kretschmar. And very excited about today's guest, Silvana Lagos, who, I mean, it's, it's impossible to, to give her credit uh, shortly. She has done so many things in the art industry. Um, but in short, Silvana is a curator and writer based between London and Stockholm. And uh, she's also an artistic director of Meridian Creative Center. El Anotsui, um, which she will speak more about, of course. And Silvana also works as an independent art professional and advisor with a strong background in curating, in project management and strategic consulting. Um, So she has basically um, supported and worked very closely with museums and public art centers and galleries all over the world. Um, It's impossible to list them all, but... You know, it's um, University of Greenwich, Hauser and Wirt, Fondazione Prada, Gagosian, uh, I don't know, I mean, uh, the Venice Biennale, the, the list is, is endless. And Silvana is with me, obviously, online. I'm very excited to have you as a guest on the show. And Silvana, first and foremost, welcome. Let's start with that.
1: Thank you. Uh, yeah, it's a bit uh, weird to always hear all the different projects that you've been a part of. And yeah, it's been a lot.
0: <laughs> yes, it's been a lot. And actually, I wonder based on this long, 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 long list, which you can obviously find on your website, Sivanalagos.com, where w- what would you pick kind of as something standing out at the moment, something that you would like to? mention as as something that really represents you and and what you do in the art industry?
1: Um, Well, I guess the exhibition that I have right now um, at Public Service Gallery, um, Imaginarium, I think it's probably, you know, it's an exhibition that I curated for the space. It's an exhibition that I've been researching and thinking about for quite some time. Um, as soon as Alex and Peta opened the space, um, Alex and I have been in dialogue about doing something together. So, and the artists are all artists that have been within my periphery or within like different circles that have um, come up over the last couple of years. Um, so I think it's like an, un- I think that the exhibition text, I think it's like an extension of how I really see collaboration, how I see progression. And I think it also like really indicates to what I do as like part of a wider range of research and projects. Um, All of the artists in the exhibitions um, are all questioning different perspectives, whether it be like the body AI, scientific papers, um, music, improvisation, or how we view, um, let's say, Arab men. um, And they're all kind of presenting a new world vision that isn't from a European central um, white male perspective um, and really kind of help us reposition how we look and why we look at things in the way that we do. Um, I wrote the artist text um, before October 7th. Mm. Um, and I think, you know, considering everything that's been going on right now, I very much considered changing it. Um, cause I thought, Oh my God, I don't want this to be too political or to be seen as too political. Um, but I decided not to change it because it was true and honest. Um, and I really do believe that we have to step outside of our immediate circles to be able to really reconnect with ourselves or reconnect with something that is bigger than ourselves. Um, and I think that's one of the reasons why I probably ended up in Sweden in the first place, Mm. you know, I, I love London and London is my home. And obviously like I'm now in between London and Stockholm. But I always also felt that even though I'm in this epicenter, um, the epicenter isn't the only way to look at things, you know? Mm-hmm. So I wanted to like go and explore elsewhere. I lived in New York for a bit and then I also moved to Sweden, um, which really it was very therapeutic to be in Sweden at, at the beginning. <laughs> okay,
0: <laughs> You have to explain. <laughs>
1: Um, I think it was because one. Of, I think one of the key things that um, was therapeutic about um, uh, moving to Sweden in the first place was just like, you know, I did the art in the public realm masters at CONSFAC and it was my tutor or like the the, the head of the department absolutely hated me. Um, okay. And I really like was like why does this person hate me so much? Why does it like you know what am I doing wrong? Um, and I think that I really question like why am I doing a masters? Why am I here? Like you know that everything is so theory heavy. Um, and then I realized that actually it was very liberating to not follow what... know we we have this idea that when you go to university or when you or when you learn a system or something like this you put so much emphasis on like a hierarchy of um, information and we see that our teachers or our legislation or anything like this are like the one truth Um, but i think that during that masters i realized that i didn't have to follow uh I didn't have to follow what my teachers were teaching me, that I could still find a different way of doing things and um, that was very therapeutic for me. Hmm.
0: Thank you for sharing this. You opened up a lot of different windows, (laughs) a lot of different topics. Um, Let's go back to London. Is is London where you're born, raised? Uh, Can you elaborate a little bit on your background?
1: Um, I, I was born in Peru. I was born Mm -hmm. in Lima, Uh, my mom's Peruvian, my dad's Italian. And then I grew up in LA from when I was three months old until I was eight. And then I moved to London when I was eight. Um, I would say that London is my home and London is the place where I most identify with. Um, Mm -hmm. Every time I'm in London, it's very, everything makes sense. I like that expression.
0: Everything makes sense. I I like that.
1: (laughs) Yeah, like the trains don't work. And it's like, yeah, the trains don't work. (laughs) You know, like, oh, you can buy like Iron Brew at the shop. It's like, yeah, you can buy Iron Brew at the shop. No, London is home for sure.
0: Okay. And then you came to Stockholm. So how many years ago was this?
1: I came to Stockholm when I was 25. I had just finished my bachelor, I had just had some time in New York, and I knew that I wanted to do a master's, and I had seen the Susan Miller, um, sorry, Susan Hiller um, exhibition at Tate Britain, and she had this amazing work called, in collaboration with the Female Audio Archive, which is absolutely stunning. And then I uh, realized that the female audio archive was looked after by Marisha Levinskova and she taught at Goldsmiths. And she also taught on this course called Art in the Public Realm at Consvac. Mm. And I just thought that it was the most absolutely fantastic thing I've ever seen, which is basically, or heard, which is basically an online archive of every single like in like female artists interview audio works um and she had been categorizing this for decades and it was all free and available online and i thought it was so genius that somebody could do something and turn it into an artwork um and i thought that i had to this was exactly what i was thinking about and how i was questioning things and i it made sense that I want to do a master's. And I was like, okay, well, then I'll just apply for this master's. <laughs> um, so I was, um, I only applied for one master's. Um, and sometimes I get a bit like that. I get really focused and then I forget that maybe you should apply for a couple of things so you have more options. Mm. Um, and then I got in, um, which was great. Um, and then she hated me. <laughs>
0: Does she still hate you?
1: Um, we sometimes bump into each other at different uh, art contexts. We just ignore each other now.
0: <laughs> Interesting.
1: <laughs> She's a well, very special see. character.
0: Let's see if she listens to this podcast episode or not. <laughs> <laughs> but how come you 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 went into art in the first place?
1: How did I go into art in the first place? I don't know how not to, uh, be doing what I do. I've tried, you know, when I was applying for university, I, I decided to apply for history and, mm-hmm. and, uh, photography. Mm-hmm. I did photography as my bachelor. Um, and I thought, you know, I know that I want to do photography, but the logical thing to do is to maybe do history. Um, so I'll apply for both just in case um, and I got accepted to both. So unfortunately I had to make that choice, they didn't make that choice for me. Um, it's just something that has, my. neither of my parents are I would say artistic. Um, I was really annoying when I was a kid and I wanted to go to museums and to spend time at museums and my sister and my mum would have to like follow me around for hours. Um, just so that I could go and look at artifacts and stuff like this. Um, Mm. but yeah, like, I don't know. It's just always been something that is just there and I wish I could be, uh, an accountant or something boring and be happy with like a nine to five and live a normal existence (laughs) but (laughs) no it's not the same instead i'm surrounded by crazy passionate artists um and chaos and otherworldly uh visions i would say Hmm. so is is that
0: what keep is that okay so basically thanks for sharing what brought you into art but what makes you stay in art
1: um, I would say my relationship with the artists. Mm-hmm. I, um, I like to realise what is going on in the head of an artist. So I want to help and facilitate and articulate. So whether it's, um, you know, having an interview with an artist and articulating what they're thinking in the studio into something that is then accessible to somebody else in a text or whether it's like an artist who's like working on a public sculpture and they want to physically realize that or whether it's, you know, um, you know, in the context of having worked with Carsten Holler, like, you know, whether it's a club night or a dinner or just thinking outside of what frameworks and systems society is based on and make it into a reality mm-hmm. so i think it's working in that way that um keeps me working in art and i also feel like a responsibility to try and protect them um and mm-hmm. i say them is like one thing that i don't think art schools teach enough is like for the business of art Mm, um how to protect how to protect i have so many students from mayan and i actually proposed this to the old uh head teacher um because i was like your students need this like why are your students contacting me asking me how do i price my works uh i've been asked to do this public commission like can you help me look at the contract um this gallery approached me to do this like is this a good situation it's like i'm just a person on my own i i'm a friend of i mean all of my friends are artists or whatever um why are they approaching me like why is the school system not giving this hmm. very practical very very basic information as part of the curriculum um that that's a mystery do, to me
0: as well Definitely. Yeah.
1: And if they do, it's so basic, because Mm. I still get asked these questions, even from artists that are like, you know, not students, Um, Mm. there isn't enough of that information readily available. And um, artists also think of like, contracts as like being difficult, but they're not, you know, yeah, anyway.
0: Okay, Silvana, so um, how to price art 101? Where do you start? (laughs)
1: how to price well it really depends it really depends because like I have people think that you can just price something from an emotional point of view especially if you're a young artist you price things in from an emotional point of view and you can and then you price things way too high um and you know just because you've had one show at a one gallery does not make it an art career people also like get greedy and price very quickly very high and it can alienate your market um also you know once you price up you can't price down Mm -hmm. like you have to understand that if you price up it's like it's first of all the percentage of art collectors is minuscule and the percentage of art collectors that can reach a certain price point it gets even smaller so like you have to be careful with how you do these things you have to be not sentimental look at your market um do your research and don't get too greedy you know think longevity um you know i was quite recently speaking to a friend in regards to like unless you want to be an artist like alex israel who is Mm -hmm. actually a pretty good artist but he doesn't show in any museum shows because he's just a gallery artist. And he sells for, mm-hmm. you know, far close of money. But is he going to stand the longevity of time if he's never had any museum shows during his lifetime? Because he's only been marketed as a gallery artist? I mean, I feel that's detrimental to an artistic um, career. Um, but yeah. But wh- like, why is that? I mean, it's a... Think in that way.
0: Yeah, but well, can, can you explain why? I mean, do you need to show in a museum to be a, a real artist?
1: No, you don't need to show in a museum to be a real artist. But a museum, like, I guess this, like, this is still something that I sometimes like fight against because I work in trying not to work in legitimate spaces. But there mm-hmm. is a certain amount of legitimacy um like if you want to go down in art history like if you want to be part of like an art education that people are going to read about hundreds of years from now then sure you should be featured in a museum you're not gonna nobody's gonna care if you're just the artist that sold for the most amount of millions you know but maybe um, during your lifetime,
0: that's what you want to do. <laughs> so, you know, maybe as an artist, you just want to paint and earn a lot of money and have fun.
1: Yeah, sure. Um, from <laughs> the artists, I mean, of course, there are artists that think that way. But I think, like, similarly, how, how you just asked me, like, why do you work in art? How did you get into art? And it's like, it's something that you can't really explain. You know, it's like, it's something that's just inside Mm -hmm. that just so happens. And the majority of artists, they're artists because it's something that is constantly like growing inside them. They're constantly trying to express something. They see the world in a different way. And sure, if you make money, that's great. Um, I don't know. I just believe that there's other ways to, I mean, if you want, if, if your main goal in life is to just make money, then for me, that's a pretty, uh, that's not how I would like to live my life. Um, And and that I agree with, I'm
0: just trying to challenge, not challenge you, but kind of just also for the sake of the conversation and for the listeners to understand the dynamics of the art world, because I, I do understand, you know, your perspective, however, not showing in a museum doesn't take away that you are an artist. It just, you know, it, no. right? So, and 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 selling for lots of money doesn't make you less of an artist. Uh, it makes you a richer artist, <laughs> right?
1: Yeah, maybe I get snobby in this point. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but this is interesting, right? <laughs> Oh my god! <laughs>
0: and, and sorry, Alex um, Israel, if you are listening to this episode, well, sorry for <laughs> t- taking you as an example, but
1: <laughs> yeah. But I mean, like, but I mean, there is something quite smart about him, and you have to understand that he was like, he was an inter or an, an assistant from John Baldessari, mm-hmm. and I think that really influenced a certain like element of his work. But he's gone like the you know three sixty on that. I mean, can you imagine how much he must have been paid to feature in, like, the and just like that HBO series? Mm. Mm. Like, it was an Alex Israel exhibition on a TV show, HBO, primetime slot, Stan Smith in the same frame. He must have, like, <laughs> it's probably, he got more than what an artwork sells for, probably. Yeah. <laughs> Um, I mean, that in itself, like, um, I enjoy those quirkisms, but yeah, sure. I can be a snob about it too.
0: Okay. So let's, let's, um, let's elaborate your snobbism. (laughs) 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 In in, In the world, in the world of Silvana, uh, what does then make an artist great?
1: I think um, an honesty like and I yeah I think an honesty is what makes an artist great so that means that they are they can go into their ego they can play around in their ego but then they understand that they've gone into the ego and have gone into that I think um, going I think that being an artist is about showing a truth um, so I think when you're honest in that That's what makes a good artist. Um, The intention, the integrity, um, transforms in in that way.
0: I was just thinking actually, listening to to your introduction, I wonder if if my listeners really understand what you do actually. (laughs) (laughs) What does a curator do? You know, if, if you're like new to art, you know, you might buy a few paintings here and there, but then you listen to this show and you're like, okay, but what does a curator really do? So let's get back to the basics.
1: A a curator is basically a therapist for artists. (laughs) (laughs) Okay.
0: Well, that's not really what a curator does, but okay, fair enough. (laughs)
1: Um, No, I I guess like what a curator does is like, whereas like an artist is trying to show this truth or is trying to like um, show like a different perspective, um, I think what a curator does is show a different narrative in the work. So it's about how you put those works together that kind of join that perspective and um, allows the viewer to be able to as- absorb that narrative as a narrative. So it might be, yeah, it's all about how you visit the space. Um, as yes, you select like the res- work,
0: you, you're part of selecting the work placing the work hanging the work or or whatever type of work it is right and you're also you're kind of a a conductor almost of an orchestra in a way
1: yeah um you're yeah you're very much like you have to be in tune with what the artistic intention is of the artwork and being in tune with how that fits into a space and ensuring that when you um see that in a space the person the viewer is able to get that narrative and i think one of my favorite um so i've been very lucky that when i worked with carsten holler i was able to work with germano salant on uh the torre um and it was with the upside down mushroom room um and you know, just from the, I remember like Carsten didn't want to go on the meetings. So it was just me and Gen Mano and he's like, he was very lively. Um, but he would just like, you know, the way that he would talk about like the texture of the floors, how that hasn't like, you know, when you walk into the space, the, the, the floors have this texture. So therefore it makes a certain sound because it makes that certain sound. Then you experience the work in a different way like those, a curator is able to really investigate how somebody walks into a space to be able to get the narrative of the artwork translated to them. Um, I worked with another curator who, um, yeah, we sent it to Dolly for another exhibition of Carstens. And one of my favorite things was like, you know, when he was going into a space, when he was curating a show, he walks into the space like the normal entrance, um, but then he also does the same walkthrough, but backwards because he wants to see what happens to the space, how you read the space when you walk in from a different direction. So I think that that's what a curator does. It's like it transforms what's in the studio, what's in an artistic vision, artistic intention, and translates that into a narrative that is in conversation with the, in dialogue with the, architecture the space the locality um that will be able to be read and translated by a viewer um engaging them in a way that maybe they didn't think was possible or just glimpsing something um that perhaps wasn't in the work to begin with you know um I think that's what a curator does and then obviously like the basic things of like being the, the therapist to the artist and like researching and
0: Isn't that the role of the gallerist?
1: The what do you mean?
0: Well, being a therapist and a kind of deal maker and 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 protector isn't that the role of the gallerist? What is the difference to between what the gallerist extent. Yeah.
1: I mean from to a certain extent of course that's what galleries do as well but like as a curator you also have those hats you also are protecting the vision of the artist um and you're also making sure that they're getting the best deal um yeah for sure i think it's a duality i mean artists are very protected in so many ways
0: yes (laughs) they're
1: like wrapped in cotton wool
0: how does a curator get paid you know the galleries they 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 run on commissions you know 50 50 40 60 whatever right but the curator is it a fixed fee or is it a percentage or is it a
1: commission i mean yeah. i mean every different institution has different structures hmm. i'm a big believer that everything that you do is an exchange um, so therefore even if it's just so, like, for example, for every artist that I've ever worked with, like, and I, uh, one of the first things that I did was curating the public art programme for Norberg Festival. Is when I was still doing my master's in Sweden. And my budget was something ridiculous, like 5,000 kroner. It was, like, nothing. Like, really nothing. By the time I finished, um, two or three years later, I had... Uh, I think I finished on like 50,000 sec just because I've been applying for different grants and whatever. Anyway, um, the first show that I did, um, and I had 5,000 sec to put this together, um, the board were really confused as to why um, I was fighting to make sure that the artists got a fee. Because we were giving them material, we were giving them this and whatever. And I was like, they like, it's, they have spent, this is their intellectual property. This is their thing. Like you can't not pay them for that exchange. Even if it's 500 crowns, it doesn't matter. It's still an exchange. And therefore you have to show gratitude for that. Like it's so vital that people, I think it's important to share ideas and to share knowledge but i think it's also important to appreciate and have gratitude for that um, and oftentimes people do want to take for free and i think that's wrong mm. especially for people like artists um so yeah no i think it's important to always uh compensate for any exchange that there is and for your time mm. Mm. But every so gallery and every museum has a different uh, structure.
0: Yeah. So typically, one would say that a gallery is a white cube, a big museum mm-hmm. is a white cube um, mm-hmm. and you hang a painting on a white wall. You have some good lightning and then that's how you kind of typically experience art unless you buy it and place it at home or in the office or mm-hmm. elsewhere. But obviously art can be experienced in so many different ways. Um, mm-hmm. And I know that you are particularly fond of moving beyond the white cube as a space for for Mm -hmm. showing art. Can you elaborate a bit on this?
1: Yeah. When I was doing the masters, I went really quite deep into like researching music or researching sound. And for me, it was like really vital to understand like how you create a public and how that public can be created outside of like a common space Um, and what is it that creates the public. Um, So for me, it's always been quite important to put things together that wouldn't normally be put together in spaces that wouldn't normally uh, be hanging art. So I think that like um, I was part of this curatorial collective in London called A by P. And when we got approached by Somerset House, we were approached like, okay, they're going to renovate the building. Um, come and do something in this part of the building while we re- before you renovate, you can have the space for free. You can do whatever you want. Um, so it was like it wasn't a white cube. It was like you know, it was the old like Inland Revenue tax office, um, which. was really nice to kind of first of all, invite people into something that they wouldn't normally experience, but also to kind of take away the white cube space was like, yeah, really about taking away the space of sanitation. Uh, during the pandemic, I was like, I really got into like, uh, I got into reading about like modernist, um, architecture. Modernism um, and like what happened to our architecture and to our technology after the flu pandemic, the Spanish flu pandemic in the 19. was it 09? 1909. Anyway, um, you know, the white cube kind of happened after the Spanish flu pandemic, this like idea of like sanitizing spaces. Like prior to that, the way that we were experiencing art was like saloon hangings, um, like massively condensed spaces. Um, So I think it's about kind of turning back to that um, and trying to create a situation where it's not intimidating. I think white cubes can be intimidating for a lot of people. Um, And I think that it's important to... Create those narratives that don't just stay within the same circle, so don't just stay within the same group of people um, and kind of step out of that a little bit more. So working on the exhibitions at Somerset House was one of those things. The exhibition that I did in Lima with Revolver Galleria was also about that. Um the exhibitions that I've done at Eva Levine's apartment were also about that. Um, I'm working a lot in different projects, public artwork projects in Saudi Arabia that's very much about that, like how do you introduce art to a populace that hasn't, doesn't really have museums in the same way and doesn't, hasn't, it's like a very nascent nation of experiencing art in the way that we are used to. yeah, so it's very much about creating a space that creates these conversations in a non-intimidating space, but can also be entertainment.
0: So you mean the Meridian uh, Creative Center?
1: No, uh, the no. Meridian Creative Center, which is the Alan Asui Foundation, um, that is in Ghana.
0: That's in Ghana. Okay, thank you for clarifying yeah. that. Okay, so yeah. um, and what is, what is the, um, uh, what's your platform in in Saudi and where?
1: Uh, Saudi, I've been working with a lot of public artwork projects. So, Nor okay. Riyadh, yeah. which is eighty-two monumental public artworks across the whole city of Riyadh. Mm.
0: Um, How did you end up uh, getting that uh, assignment? Or yeah,
1: um, I was headhunted.
0: Hmm. Interesting.
1: Hmm. Yeah, both for the projects in Saudi and also for the project in Ghana, I was headhunted. Hmm.
0: And obviously yeah. I mean the inevitable question as a scandi is you I, I guess one gets second thoughts working with Saudi but uh, could you elaborate a bit on that in terms of
1: I think democracy um, and yeah <laughs> well first of all uh first of all I'm um, I'm not white Um, Second of all, I have grown up in a multicultural city such as London. So I have Hmm. had Muslim friends as much as any other group of friends. And I think that, of course, there's a lot of problematics um, that are part of something that is Saudi, however, is having a very big structural change which is far more progressive than I would say something like, for example, the fact that we voted back Roe um, Ro versus Roe um, in the U.S. two years ago now. Um, or the fact that in the U.K. we're sending immigrants to Rwanda, or that's mm. the plan. Or that Sweden is also heading towards a far more right uh, government um, and across europe um, there is definite for sure but i think that not being a white person and going into a space like saudi you can approach it in a different way where it's not this exotic situation but rather sure. you mm. are on the same level of like seeing each other and also understanding that there's a viewer that projects a certain version of what they perceive Mm. you to be Mm. and you know the first questions i always get asked what is it like to be a woman working in saudi do you feel safe working in saudi um you know typical questions that people Mm -hmm. all ask me um i have never had like any issue being a woman in Saudi Arabia, Mm. um, I get along with my Saudi colleagues. You know, it really, really brings to mind like how much of our perception, especially like now with what's going on, like the thing that upsets me the most about what's going on right now is the dehumanization of both like Palestinians and Israelis in the language that is allowed to be used against both sides. Mm -hmm. Yes. It is so dehumanizing. And I think that we're so used to using dehumanizing language towards Islam. Um, And I think 9-11 obviously had like a lot to do with that and the aftermath of those things. Mm. Now I'm getting super political. I yeah, feel <laughs> like, it's, right. you know, um, which I'm. But I think that so much of our perception of what the region is is fed through a voyeuristic lens,
0: mm.
1: you know, um, from a Western perspective, or from a perspective of like what we want the world to see. But if you're a quote unquote um, young person. um, I'm going to call myself young. uh, (laughs) And you go to this situation, then you just meet other people. You don't like, then like, yeah, you just meet other people. Hmm. Um, You realize that all of these notions of this, like, you know, whatever has been told to you, in the media. There are, of course, just like anywhere else, still problematics, but it's it's all just also I've like, you know, having been working there for like, let's say three months or however long, mm. like the compassion that I have for my friends there, they know that I'm not getting any home cooked meals. They know that I'm mm. ordering out every night or eating mm. out every night. They're like come home and have dinner with my parents Mm. i've lived in sweden for 10 years i've never had somebody invite me to go eat at home with their parents you know
0: yeah and yeah that's a different topic (laughs) that's that's very that's very problematic i would say i mean i also have a multicultural background although white but um from different European countries. And I agree with you. Um, Swedes are maybe not the, the most hospitable in terms of inviting you home.
1: Hospitable in different ways, for yeah, yeah. sure. Mm, mm. Um, but maybe not in that kind of way. And I think, yeah, I don't know. I, I really hope that the way that I meet people is based on, and that includes Swedes, <laughs> mm-hmm. is based on not this like notion or perception that I'm being told. But rather, I'm meeting them as human beings on a, you know, like, for example, like, I remember, like, after Brexit, um, getting in a cab from the airport, I don't know why I got a cab instead of like, taking the train, but either way, I took a cab from the airport home. And the cab driver was like, super racist, super pro uh, Brexit. And he was just, like, saying these, like, crazy things. Like, you know, so happy that we can now uh, start fishing in our lakes Mm -hmm. and, you know, go back to eating British fish or something like this. Which is, (laughs) like, okay. (laughs) Um, But it was just, like, okay. So this is a person who is basically saying that they don't want any foreigners in the UK. Like, again, I'm not white. And and he's saying this to me, yes, I'm in his cab Mm. and he's like, you know, and the stuff that he was saying was like wild, like it was crazy, but it's like, okay, how do I deal with this situation? Do I meet him as a human being and speak to him as a person and not get angry and just try to like have a discussion that can be humanistic and understanding and compassionate or... Do I literally just like, because he was saying some really outrageous stuff. i sure I should have just like sworn at him and like left his cab. Um, but instead I kind of felt like, okay, we can, you know, I'm not going to try to change your mind, but I can still treat you like a human being and, and trying to understand why these views, like why these are your views. And I think, yeah. I think that we, for, we forget, we are so easy to polarize things, you know, as opposed to just try to also have compassion for the other. Um, yeah.
0: And this is also where art plays an amazing role in, in yeah. bridging people together. And, and I, I think at least that is one of the reasons I'm drawn to art uh, besides the aesthetic parts that it really unites people. Uh, more often than it divides people, it also art is also a symbol for democracy, for free speech, for an open society. That typically in a society where you kind of mount down democracy or institutions, you start with culture, you start with art, the, or the arts, the fi- uh, because in a way it is the ultimate symbol for freedom uh, in a society. So I, I, mm-hmm. I think. In that regards i'm very happy that uh, i meet someone like you um, that can bring art uh, to a wider audience and that can also bring a multicultural perspective on art especially being based in sweden as you are and and maybe uh, to to kind of uh, start to close this episode this conversation if you can for our listeners, explain a bit about your initiatives in Accra uh, because I think that is really, really exciting and uh, it would be interesting to hear not only about Accra and what you're going to do there, what you are doing there, but also what are your plans for 2024.
1: Okay, um, so I was approached earlier this year. I think it was like May or something like this. Um, I was being headhunted, uh, asked if I wanted to um, look at this position that has been released by the Alan Foundation, Alan Asui Studio. Um, this new initiative by Alan And he's the artist who um, has just opened at the Turbine Hall in September. Mm. Yeah. He is the highest selling living African artist. Mm. I think his works start at like 1.2 million. Um, he is one of the few artists that also stay in Africa as opposed Mm. to going elsewhere. Um, and the position was to be artistic director. Um, I was actually in Saudi when I took the phone call and I was just like, you know, my motto is like, always take the meeting. (laughs) Um, so I took the meeting. And I was like "Oh wow this this like this is like incredible, like what he's doing mm. is absolutely like beautiful um and then I was like, okay, then i i'm gonna go meet him so it was him uh and two other people in the meeting, and I left feeling like so." energised and so absolutely inspired by the way that he thinks about art making. Um, he sees art making as a collaborative way of navigating life. He sees it as it's extremely important to have education at the core. Um, He sees it so much more as a community putting things together, it's his artworks, but it's his artwork in a dialogue with something else Mm -hmm. Um, and what he's doing with the uh, Meridian Creative Center is basically that. Um, It's a hub for creativity, for innovation, mixing together the different mediums that he works with which is you know woodwork, bottle cups, ceramics, music, um, printmaking and creating a hub that's essentially flourishing these initiatives um, and creating I mean the actual space is like I think it's like 2,000 square meters maybe mm. um, and Yeah, like the way that he sees his art making is not about like the single person at the top of the hierarchy, but rather he sees it as like, for all of us, you know, Um, and to me that was just such a beautiful way of collaboration um, and a beautiful way to kind of see oneself outside of themselves. so when I went to Accra for the second part of the meeting, which was by this time, I think it was like August. Um, it was just like, because I thought I would go to Accra and I'd be like, okay, I'm going to not like it. It's go- mm-hmm. There's going to be something that's not right, you know, because though I really want to move to to Africa, like it's, it seems so abstract, you know, mm. um. And then I go to Accra and it was like, oh my God, (laughs)
0: Mm. I was
1: like so emotional and so like, it makes sense. Like everything makes sense. Like why are Mm. we making art in such a way? Why are we so trying to be so exclusive and why are we, you know? And then obviously like along that side, like, He's so, so smart and it's about building something that is greater than ourselves. It's about education, it's about connection and it's about non, I mean, again, when it goes to this idea of like creating art that is not intimidating within a white cube space, I think this is about creating a space that is not intimidated to be able to express, to be able to make. Mm. Um, And, you know, this is also about protecting his legacy. I think it's so vital to protect the legacy of an artist who is so important. Um, I feel very honored to be asked to be able to be part of that journey, um, so I'll be creating like the programs, like that will essentially see the different structures of the studio working together with each other, creating different programs for people to come and do studio visits, looking at how to uh, that longevity of his um, legacy, let's say, from a very classical point of view to a certain extent. Um, I guess also translating what he's thinking in his brain, but yeah.
0: That's very very exciting listen Silvana I could go on forever speaking to you uh, you have such um, knowledge uh, about art uh, and um, I would love to uh, continue this conversation in real life um, but I think um, for our listeners out there let's let's give them a treat what will ge- what will you show next year what what are the big um, big news in the world of Silvana next year?
1: I guess like my main focus for the year ahead is like working with L, um, but then I've also have some other projects also in Saudi and in New York, tickling down. Um, I can't really speak about them, but okay. um, New York and Saudi and Ghana. <laughs> okay,
0: that's great. And yeah. um, the listeners can f- find you on your website, which will be in the show notes, on Instagram and uh apparently you are everywhere all across the world that's fantastic a, w- a true world citizen Silvana. it's been a great pleasure to have you on the show uh, i wish you. you um happy new year as well thank you
1: thank you <laughs> so
0: this was the art bystander i'm roland philippe kretschmar This is the last episode of uh, 2023 and looking forward to meet you all again uh, in the beginning of next year. Thank you.